As we understand the setting now, we know that Jesus concluded his time with the 11 in the upper room. From verses 13 through 17, we know that he spent time promising those disciples wonderful blessings in the new age to come and praying to the Father that the Father would care for them in the time that Jesus would go to the cross, and not only then, but continuing at that point. And now the hour has come to move toward Calvary. And so Jesus leaves that upper room with that little group of 11. He goes out of the gate down the little slope of Kidron, crossing the little winter torrent up the other side into the Mount of Olives to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this garden, Jesus spends time in prayer, agonizing over the anticipation of sin-bearing and separation from God. And as we studied a few weeks ago, Jesus went there because he knew that Judas knew that he would go there. He realized that his hour had come and it was time for him to die. And he makes it very easy for Judas to lead that angry mob on that day, on that night, to find him. Certainly proving that Jesus was no man's victim but Jesus was the ultimate victor. You remember that we also studied and saw the great and tremendous power that is magnified in Jesus. You remember when Judas came and, and gave the betrayal kiss saying, Hail Master. But Jesus turned their well-planned maneuver into a triumph of his own power. When he said, Who are you looking for? And they said, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responded like this. He says, I am he, or that word he is in italics. If we take that out from the original, Jesus simply said, I am. And the Bible says when he spoke these words, they all fell back. They all fell flat. Later on, Jesus would ask them again. He said, who are you looking for? And they would respond, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, proving that he was in complete control, said, If you're looking for me, he said, here I am, and let these men go. You see, Jesus was building a little shelter over his disciples, getting them to admit from their own mouths that they were only looking for Jesus, proving again, always in control, and never a victim. But you remember this. And it was the last scene before we ended our sermon last time. That Peter jumps out of this little shelter of protection. And he, and he takes matters into his own hands. And you remember as they're standing there and Judas is standing there. And all of a sudden, the Bible says that Peter grabs his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus. Now I'm going to share something with you. I thought about this this week actually. Remembering how I used to think. Or, or I used to think this was talking about. And when I was a kid, I used to think, man, Peter must have really been a skilled swordsman. He took his sword and he took careful aim and he took that sword and went right down the side of Malchus's head and sliced off his ear, sending him a message, don't mess with us. I used to think that when I, when I was a kid. You know, there's nothing in all the Bible that says that he was a skilled swordsman. And I don't believe that he cut his ear off because he took careful aim and hit his mark. I think he cut his ear off because he missed. I think he swung to cut his head off and Malchus turned his head like this, maybe something like that, and he sliced off his ear. What was wrong with Peter's reaction? Jesus had built a shelter of protection over those disciples, getting them to admit not once but twice, we are only looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, well, if that's the case, you let these men go. 
Peter took matters into his own hands, didn't he? And Jesus grabs that ear, whatever it was, as mangled as it was. The language seems to indicate that he mended the ear, creating almost a new one, and he put it back on the side of the head of this man called Malchus. The problem with Peter is he tried to jump out of the shelter the Lord provided, and that's exactly what happens today. When man stops listening to the Lord and starts thinking for himself. How many times, religiously speaking, has a man got himself in trouble because he stopped listening to the Lord and started thinking for himself? Every time, man gets in trouble. And so did Peter in the long ago. We can almost hear the tone in the, in the words of Jesus as he puts the ear back on Malchus and basically, as I paraphrase, turning to Peter and saying, Peter, put that thing away. For he who will live by the sword shall die by the sword. Now then, verses 12 through 27, we find that there are two dramas that are taking place. Not one, but two. These are separate dramas. They are separate scenes and they are in separate locations. And it will only be at the end of our sermon this morning when we will see in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 22, that these two scenes are going to come together and they're going to meet. But what we have is we've got one drama going on over here and we've got another drama going on over there. You've got Jesus' trial right here and you've got Peter's denial over here. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, these scenes are interwoven in our passage. It is almost like it's saying this. Talk about Jesus' trial for a little while. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's as if it's saying, and meanwhile, over here in Peter's denial. And a few more things are said about Peter's denial. And then meanwhile, back over here at the trial. It seems as though it's, it's written kind of like that. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. There are two basic foundational truths that is found in these passages. And that is this. We see the absolute glory of Jesus Christ. And at the very same time, we see the sinfulness of man. And we see as sinful as man was, we see the willingness that Jesus had to pay the great price for sinful man that not only didn't deserve it, but was actually literally denying him at that moment. Okay, here we go. Jesus' trial, I guess we'll call this Act 1, verses 12 through 14. In verse 12, the Bible says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You know, there's a very interesting thought here and description in this multitude. Because in this, we find a very good illustration of the kind of people, the world picture of those that deny Jesus today. In this multitude, you have every kind of person, every kind of walk of life. In this great mob, and we've already proven that there were hundreds of them. In this angry mob, there was Gentiles and Jews. There was heathens and religious people. There were soldiers and servants. There were priests and Pharisees. There's every different kind of fella that you can imagine was with this mob. And you know, they didn't have all things in common, but there was one thing that every single one of these had in common, and that was this. They were totally and completely stone-cold blind to the incomparable qualities of the Son of God. 
They were absolutely unaffected by the magnificence of Jesus Christ. They were untouched. They were unmoved. And I'll tell you this, that is a great picture of the grip and ugliness of sin. The blindness and ugliness and grip of sin. You know, when we look at this scene, so many times we say, why, why people aren't interested more today than ever before? We sit there with the word of God and we show them exactly what they need to do to be saved. Just as simple as that, man, but they don't accept it. They reject it. When we look at what happened on this occasion, it's easy for us to understand what happened, what happens today based on what's already happened. Get this. They rejected Jesus and he was standing right in front of them. He speaks Two words and they all fall down, unfazed and unaffected. That's nothing new, though. The Apostle Paul said this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. The God of this world is the same kind of idea when the Bible talks about Satan being the prince of the power of darkness, prince of the power of the air. Now, they come in verse 12, and the Bible says that they bound Jesus. You know, there's probably several reasons why they bound him. Jesus didn't fight back. Jesus didn't try to resist. In fact, do you remember? Remember a couple times ago when they came into the Garden of Gethsemane, and they, were, they had torches and lanterns and so forth and so on? And you remember that I said that scholars indicate that there's probably a full moon at that time, and Jerusalem would have been lit, lit up. They didn't need that to, to, to travel from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. They needed those lanterns because they thought Jesus would hide. They'd have to go to every nook and cranny in the Garden of Gethsemane and see where Jesus was, and they found him. Not only did they find him right off, he walked toward them. Why'd they bind him? Well, first of all, it was common practice to secure a captive. If you go to arrest somebody, if you go to arrest somebody, even today, what do they do? They put handcuffs on you. You may not be resisting, but it's a sign of your captivity or of being arrested. Secondly, in Matthew chapter 26 and 48, do you remember when Judas is having, making his deal with these haters of Jesus? He's making his deal, and he says this, when I, as I paraphrase, when I lead you to Jesus, when you see him, when you get him, what did Judas say? He said, hold him fast. I don't know why he said that, but that's what Judas said. And I would imagine that that's part of it, but beyond that, there's something else. There's certainly a very beautiful fulfillment of typical prophecy. You remember last time we talked about the fact that there are two kinds of prophecy. There is verbal predictive prophecy, which is a statement that, that is made that is fulfilled or will be fulfilled. Then there's a typical prophecy in which certain acts, a certain person or a certain thing typifies a fulfillment. Here's an example of verbal predictive prophecy. It's when a statement like this is made about Jesus unto us. A child is born, unto us a son is given. Verbal predictive prophecy. Now, on the other hand, there is 
sacrifices of the old law, and every time that a sacrifice was laid on an altar, it was a picture of Jesus Christ. It was a type. That is typical prediction. Now, both are accurate equally, and both are important equally. So Jesus is bound, and in so doing, fulfilled typical prophecy, because in the Old Testament, according to Psalm 118 and 27, the Bible says, bind the sacrifice with cords under the horns of the altar. In other words, when the sacrifice was given, it was to be bound. Another example, very familiar passage, Genesis 22 and 9 regarding Isaac. Isaac was a perfect prophetic type of Jesus Christ, a picture of Jesus. And the Bible says when he was laid on that altar to be sacrificed, he was bound to the altar. Something else, too. This is just a side note here. But you remember when they were going, they spent that three days and they were traveling together? When Abraham was with Isaac, who was carrying the wood? The Bible says it was Isaac. And you know, never in time prior to that time had that which is to be sacrificed carry the wood that it would be sacrificed on. Never happened before. And it never happened again until Calvary, when Jesus carried his cross. Perfect, perfect fulfillment of typical prophecy. Being bound was a fulfillment of typical prophecy. Certainly bound to the cross was the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy in preparation for sin. In verse 13, we find we now get down to the nitty-gritty of the trial. And the Bible says they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, let me just say this. Annas and Caiaphas, <clears throat> these guys were real crumbs. I don't know how else to put that. These were the despicable, the lowest of the low. These guys are crumbs, but they are extremely important to our narrative. When Jesus was taken to Annas, this is the first phase of Jesus' trial because Jesus had not one, but he had two trials that day. He had a religious trial and he had a civil trial. His religious trial had to do with Israel. His civil trial had to do with Rome. Now, nothing could be done in terms of Jesus' execution without Rome. Israel could decide that he should die, but it was Rome that had to carry it out. It was Rome that had to execute him. And so, first of all, we have a religious trial, and that trial had three phases. Number one, right after he was bound in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was the arraignment and the indictment. And that was before this man named Annas. The second phase of this religious trial was an illegal gathering when Caiaphas got together with the Sanhedrin, not the next day, not a proper trial, he got together with the Sanhedrin that very night, phase two. Phase three, the next morning, again, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, only this time it was false witnesses gathered together in a mock trial. Three phases of his religious trial. On the other hand, there were three phases of the civil trial. When Jesus was taken before Pilate, and Pilate didn't know what to do with him. 
In fact, Pilate would never know what to do with it. In fact, Pilate, after examination later on, says this. He says, I wash my hands of the blood of this just man. I wash my hands of the whole thing. I'm not going to be guilty of the blood of this honest and true and just man. It goes to Pilate first. Then he said, sent to Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee who happened to be down in Jerusalem at the time. And Herod didn't know what to do either, so what's he do? He sends him back to Pilate. That's phase three of the civil trial. Let's talk about who Annas was for just a little while. Annas was a very powerful and immensely rich man. This was a man that really ran the show. He, He was a man that was in charge of concession booths. Now, I'm not talking about... When I say concession booths, I'm not talking about hot dogs and popcorn. I'm not talking about a concession stand. I'm talking about a couple of things. First of all, I'm talking about the sale of livestock. And secondly, I'm talking about when they would come to pay taxes. They would come and they would, they'd bring foreign currency. And they would need to exchange the foreign currency in order that they might pay taxes. In fact, that's why Jesus was infuriated. We'll get to that in just a moment. The problem is, Annas was a man that was full of extorting the people. In fact, some scholars say that as much as five times, he extorted them as much as five times what the actual rate would have been. An awful man. In fact, the Jews themselves hated Annas. The Talmud says this, which was a commentary of history and so forth said this about Annas, and I quote, Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpents' hiss! They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-laws, guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves. Now, Annas literally hated Jesus. Let's go back just a few days now. Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem about a week prior to the time that he would be taken to the cross. You remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, when Jesus overturned the table of the money changers. Remember that? He said, as I paraphrase, in essence this, you have taken the house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. You don't think that was eaten at Annas? It sure was. He messed up his whole plan. Jesus messed up his entire plan. Not only was he the brains behind the machinery, this man Annas, but he was messing up his business. There was a great reason to bring Jesus before Annas because if anybody had the power and had the enticement to indict Jesus, it certainly would have been Annas. So Jesus is brought before Annas first, and then we meet a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas had to be introduced because Caiaphas was technically the high priest at this time, according to verse 13. And in verse 14, it says, Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, Caiaphas had been plotting the death of Jesus all along. Jesus began to be very, very popular. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons, as we mentioned before, why they 
when Jesus had them come and take him in private. Jesus was very popular. They didn't do it in the downtown streets of Jerusalem. There might have been a big riot. Jesus was giving himself up, so he did it in, in private. And he knew Judas would come there with that angry mob, absolutely. But Jesus was very popular. In fact, when Jesus came in in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Bible says that he came on the back of a colt of a donkey, and they were crying out, Hosanna! They were magnifying Jesus. He was coming on the back of a colt of a donkey, but they were elevating him, those that loved him and those that he was popular among. Caiaphas was worried sick about Jesus. And so Caiaphas had been planning his death all along. Let's go back before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11 and verse 49, Caiaphas had gotten together with his people, his cronies, his whoever. And they got together and they were discussing the matter of Jesus. Very important. We've got to discuss about Jesus. Do you remember what they said? They said to Caiaphas, when Caiaphas began to extend to them his concerns, they said back to Caiaphas, don't worry about that. It's going to go away. It's no big deal. It will all just come to pass. It will all just be all right. You know what Caiaphas said? He said, you know not what you say. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about. He goes even further. This is amazing. Caiaphas says, now this is long before. Now, the reason that they were talking about, we got to do something about Jesus, is because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and they were worried about it. They were worried about the people that would follow Jesus. And so Caiaphas says this, not only do you not know what you're talking about, but you can't understand and you can't even see that it is expedient, get this now, it's expedient that one man should die that a nation be spared. You don't even understand that it's expedient that a one man die for the nation. Now, interesting Caiaphas is saying this because he wants literally Jesus taken out of the way because Jesus is going to mess up the nation. There's going to be a revolution. The Romans are going to come in. They're going to take over and they're going to wipe us all out. We've got to do everything that we can possibly fathom to kill Jesus to take him out of the way. But I like what the Bible says in verse 51. Because he was speaking prophecy and he didn't even know it. In verse 51 of John chapter 11 it says, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now how do you like that? He opens up his ugly, hateful mouth with political end in mind saying we have to remove Jesus from the equation and let's just kill one of them. Let's kill the head and let the entire nation be spared. He was prophesying that one man would die. That a nation, figuratively there, or a world of people may live. And what's amazing there is the Bible says Caiaphas didn't even know what he was saying. And God, still in control, was through his lips speaking prophecy to those that would hear him. Now, I said all that to say this. Caiaphas 
hated Jesus. And Caiaphas was plotting to get rid of him. You know, sometimes people do that. They get an idea in their mind. For example, they may have a position on a certain Bible passage or a position about something regarding our life and the things that we do and don't do and what's right and what's wrong. And it seems as though people, what they want to do is they want to get the idea first. I have this idea first. I think it ought to be this or I think it is this. Then try to figure out a way to justify the belief. Sometimes people make decisions in advance and then over time try to justify the reason for making that choice. But the choice was already made. Regarding God's word, we have to read God's word, study God's word, know God's word, and then obey and follow God's word, not the other way around. Caiaphas wanted to kill him a long time ago. It was a done deal. He was going to make it happen. He just needed a reason. Just needed a reason to justify it. Now back over at Peter's denial, verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, in Mark chapter 14 and 54, it says that that Peter followed Jesus afar off. Now, I don't know how far back he was following him, but he obviously was following him afar off. Jesus had been taken captive. He was out in front somewhere, and all of a sudden, Peter is with some other disciple. Now, number one, it was afar off. He was sneaking around, as it were, maybe just through the bushes, I don't know, behind the rocks, trees, afar off with another disciple. Who is this other disciple? I'll just say right now, I have no idea. I don't have a clue. Because it doesn't say. It's kind of like in Luke 24 where Cleopas is walking along with another disciple. Who's the other disciple? Some say it was Luke. Who knows? Who knows? And it doesn't matter because it wasn't given. But I'll just say this in passing. It's just a little free tidbit. Some commentators say that it was John. And the reason for that is that they believe that John actually sold. It says that whoever this disciple was, he was known to the high priest. Some say it was John because John's father probably sold fish to the high priest. We don't know that either. That's the problem. We don't know that he ever did that. Some say it was Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is going to come on the scene to prepare the body of Jesus in a little while after he was crucified. Some say it could have been him. Some say it was Joseph of Arimathea, and the reason for that is the Bible actually calls him a secret disciple, and this guy, he would have been able to walk freely anywhere he wanted to go. Why? He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a secret disciple, and it wasn't until after Jesus was crucified that this secret disciple mustered up the courage to go and ask the body of Jesus. I kind of think it might have been him preference doesn't matter at all bottom line is peter is walking along with this unnamed disciple now picture this no sooner that jesus puts a shelter of protection over his disciples and you know really if you remember there's a good reason why he did that 
Not because his disciples were scared. Jesus needed these disciples after he had died on the cross. And after Jesus was taken away, he needed these ambassadors. That's number one. Number, he needed them safe. Number two, he spoke to them about their faith in time past. You know what he said? Oh, ye of little faith. He knew that they couldn't stand a trial like this. He creates a shelter of protection over them. In fact, Matthew's account says, all forsook him and all fled. Everybody except Peter. What's Peter doing? He's doing the same thing that he did regarding Malchus. He stopped listening to the Lord and started thinking for himself. And he's going along and he's walking along and he's sneaking along with this other disciple. Now, let me just make this point before we just really beat up Peter here. In all fairness, Peter truly loved Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. Peter's motives were good. His intentions were good. Here's the problem. The problem was his overwhelming self-confidence made him believe that he could hack through any problem without the security of Jesus Christ. He thought, I can do it. I can go. I can go and I can handle any problem that comes my way and I can just hack right through the whole thing and I can do so without the security that Jesus Christ provided. I can do that. You know, I'm going to tell you something. You need to have confidence to live your life. That's true. We need confidence. We all need confidence. There's a difference between confidence, though, and overwhelming self-confidence. Now, we need to be confident in our life because of our faith and trust in God. When our faith is planted and our faith is on what it ought to be, then our confidence and our trust will be what it, it ought to be. But when we start thinking too highly of ourselves that we can handle anything in the world that comes our way and we don't need the security that Jesus provides, that's when we get in trouble. Now, before we get too hot about Peter, let's look at our lives, all of our lives, shall we? I know that's not very fun. But the Lord says this, I'm going to give you a secure place. I'm going to give you a place where you can be secure. The Lord said, don't get out in the world's system. Remember that word cosmos? The word cosmos? It is the invisible, evil influence that combats the church. He says, don't get out into the world's system. Don't entertain yourself with the world's entertainment. Don't gobble up the world's customs. Don't be a part of that scene. I have built for you a place where you can grow and you can be safe. And friends, that is the church. We have security in the body of Christ. We encourage one another. We not only have the Lord, we have each other. There is security. And you know, we can go to a gospel meeting. Don't you feel strengthened? I do. Why? You just spent time on the same page worshiping God with people that worship just like you and believe just like you do and have the same faith, hope, and trust in the same Lord. What happens? 
What happens is when Christians do this, when they say, you know, are you kidding me? I can handle it. I can go out in the world and remain strong. I can go and do what the world does and I'll be all right. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Anytime we do that, we fall. We really do. You know, I'm going to tell you something. When I was younger, I'm just going to throw myself out there. Here we go. When I was younger, okay, a lot, 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 lot younger, okay, I made poor choices because I thought I was strong enough to handle it on my own. You know what? I sinned. I made mistakes, and I sinned, and I fell. Now, I never stopped coming. But I guarantee you, I wasn't right. I was a boy, and I wasn't right. And I had to make those things right. I'm going to tell you, any time that you think that you can take yourself and remove yourself from the security that the Lord has provided and go out in the world and participate in things in the world and be strong, you are kidding yourself. As was I. Verse 16. Peter stood outside the door. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. You know, I don't know exactly how the scene was, but it seems to me that this other disciple goes in first and says something to this girl and then kind of turns back to Peter. Come on, Peter, let's go. Coast is clear. Jesus is already, he's already taken. They're far off. Girl at the door, come on, Peter, let's go through. And notice what happens. Now the servants, verse 18, and the officers who made a fire, actually, went too far. Okay. Here we go. Verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now picture this. Peter was not afraid to stand there in the Garden of Gethsemane side by side and fight for his Lord. He was not afraid for that. Guess what else he wasn't afraid? He wasn't afraid. He was ready for what? He was ready to follow Jesus and be there at this big trial. He was ready for the big stuff. He had planned for the big trial. He had said to the Lord, if they take you and they take your life, I'm going to be there with me. If, they, if I lose my life, I will never leave your side. And remember what Jesus said to him. We'll get to that in a minute. He was ready for the big trial. He was ready for the big stuff. Sometimes we're like that too. We're ready for the big stuff. We're ready for that. We'll stand for that. He was ready for the big stuff, and he was not afraid of the big stuff. But guess what? He was scared to death to tell the truth. He was afraid and didn't have the courage to tell the truth. You know why? Telling the truth takes real courage. It is harder to tell the truth when you have to accept the consequences of your answer. Whatever that is, it's harder to do that than it is to fight. Peter was ready for the big trial, but he wasn't ready for the little girl at the door. Interesting. Folks, that's what Satan does, and that's how Satan works. You get self-overconfidence that you think in your mind you can handle anything, and just about that time you fall. 
And you know what? Peter now is stuck with his lie. Everybody stuck with, everybody been stuck with a lie? You tell a lie because you don't have the courage to say what's right. You tell a lie. And then you're stuck with the lie. So you have to lie again. And then you're stuck with the lie. So you got to lie again. Then you can't remember. By the way, it's always better to tell the truth. It is. You know why? You don't have to remember anything. You just say it like it was. You don't have to remember what you said last time. All you got to remember what the facts were. But a liar, somebody that tells lies, you have to remember what you said the last time and then keep lying and lying and lying. And that's being stuck with a lie. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. And you know, with those words, those three words, amazing. He's ready to go. And she says, you are not one of the disciples, are you? You know, it's written in a way that she knew the answer. And he says, I am not. With those three words gone were all of his heroic promises that he made to Jesus. With those three words gone were all, was all of his courage that he had in his heart. Gone was all of his fleshly confidence, which became, and, and while he became an arrogant coward, unable to confess his Lord, cringing in lying denial. And you know something? The entire thing happened so fast, he didn't even know what hit him. Look at verse 18. Look at the progression. What's happening now to Peter? Now the servants and the officers who made a fire coals stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves. Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now I got a question for Peter. Don't you? What in the world are you doing there? What are you doing there, Peter? Why are you there? You stood next to the Lord in the garden, but now you are standing among, you are denying the Lord now, and you are standing among the enemies of the Lord. How does the guy get messed up so badly? How does that happen? First, three ways. First, his overconfidence convinced him he could make it on his own. And that happens today, folks. I can go out and do what the world does. I can do those things. I can buy a little bit of the world's morality. I can flirt a little bit with the world's kind of thinking. And it's going to be fine. And I'll be fine because I'm strong. That's number one. Here's number two. Peter was unprepared. I'm going to tell you, I've said this so many times because my dad screamed it in my head my whole life. You have to decide the kind of person that you want to be in advance before you are faced with the temptation. You have to understand, you have to prepare yourself on how you're going to act in any time. Are you going to stand up for the Lord or are you going to deny the Lord when you're at work? When people are using foul language at work. Are we going to laugh at their jokes and go right along with those things? Or are we going to make the determined resolve that we're not going to participate in those things? Are we going to be, a, are we ready for the big stuff but scared of the girl at the door? You have to decide what you're going to be. So do I. We all do. Before you're faced with the temptation or you will fall. Somebody asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Somebody asks you that. Are you, really, are you able to respond in like manner? with meekness and fear. Thirdly, because of his unpreparedness, he's now standing with the enemies of Jesus, and that was Peter, and that's exactly the pattern for falling. Starting off with getting involved in worldly things, and then all of a sudden, now here's Peter, with warm hands and a cold heart. 
Back at the trial, verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. You know what's interesting to me about this is this, this line of questioning was illegal. They're now asking questions about his disciples and his doctrine. The law stated that when anybody was brought on trial, he could not testify to bring guilt upon himself. The evidence had to be presented from witnesses testifying against him. In other words, a man was innocent until proven guilty. There was really a Fifth Amendment thing going on where no man could condemn himself by his own word. But this trial wasn't legal. This trial was a mockery. They already determined that Jesus would die. They were just trying to justify their actions. So they asked Jesus, why don't you tell us about your disciples? Tell us about your doctrine. He wanted Jesus to talk about a planned insurrection or to talk about his heresy so they could say, there it is. Aha, gotcha. You're planning a revolution. You're a heretic. And if they can do that, they already plan to kill him. But if they can do that, now they've got justification. Look how Jesus responds so beautifully in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly in the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I said nothing. Verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Verse 22. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you not answer the high priest like that? You know what's interesting is this word struck. It could also mean, it comes from a word rapisma. And it could also mean to be struck with a stick. I don't know if this is going to be symbolic or not, but in Micah chapter 5 and verse 1, we have these words, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, whether this was figurative or literal, there's certainly a perfect fulfillment of prophetic language. Micah calls Jesus the judge of Israel. Now, Annas was the acting judge. He was playing judge, but little did he know that Jesus was the real judge. Jesus responds to this in verse 23 by saying, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Jesus is saying, where are your witnesses and why are they hitting me? Why is that? Verse 24, that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas messed up. He blew it. He had been indicted. There were no charges against Jesus. So he sends him to Caiaphas. And the trial with Caiaphas was certainly a mockery in the middle of the night. During the time he was with Annas there, they had gathered together the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas to carry out this mock trial. And all that was was a gathering of false witnesses. It was a part of the plot all along. They found no evidence against Jesus. Finally, two agreed that, they were going to, that he was going to destroy the temple. But that wasn't enough. So finally, he simply asked, are you then the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am. And the Bible says that the high priest grabbed his clothes and ripped his clothes and yelled blasphemy. The Bible says they, they 
push him along now, shoving him along. There were those that were part of the angry mob that were slapping him in the face and says, and says to him, prophesy unto us, thou king, prophesy, who is he that smote thee? But you know, just in case we think that Jesus was being humbled here or in a real mess, I want you to notice Peter's denial in verses 25 to 27, and we'll close with this. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed. You know, Luke's account in Luke 22 and verse 60 talks about these two scenes now that have been interwoven throughout our text in, in the gospel according to John. Luke brings them together. And right after Peter says, I know not what thou sayest. Another account says, with cursing and swearing, he said, I know not the man. Right after he says, I know not what thou sayest. In Luke's account, the Bible says that Jesus turned and he looked upon Peter. When Peter heard the cock crow, he remembered that the Lord said, before the cock crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. Now I'm going to tell you something, folks. If any of us at any time, if we're not living as we should, there is only one way out, and that's to look back to the face of Jesus and come back. That's it. And every time we sin, that's the only thing we can do and have the blood of Jesus wash our sins away when we confess those wrongs and ask God to forgive us once we are baptized into Christ. But there's a message here that we can all learn. You know when the Bible talks about be careful when you go to restore somebody that has fallen? Be careful and don't ever have the attitude it can never happen to me. That's the truth. We can't ever have the attitude that it would never happen to us. Because I'm going to tell you something. Here's a perfect example of how a strong believer in Jesus, an apostle of Jesus Christ, can be tempted, can be weak, and can fall. That can happen to anybody, any of us, at any time. We learn from this narrative the danger of self-overconfidence. We learn the danger of prayerlessness. You know, Peter should have been praying in the garden and not sleeping. We learn the danger of evil company in our life. We learn the power that fear can have in our life, too. We learn all that. But I'm going to tell you this. If you go with me, and I'm almost finished, stay with me. I'm going to tell you this. It has a happier ending. Because Peter did fall, and Peter was sorry. But the Lord restores him. Before Jesus ascended to his father where he is now, he restored him. Please notice chapter 21 of John, and beginning in verse 25, and I will be finished. Verse 15, I'll be finished. And when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, 
Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said unto him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I think it's interesting, just in passing here, that Jesus has this man confess his Lord and confess his love for his Lord three times. One for every time he denied him. Notice, though, what Jesus says. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Notice what this means the next verse. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You know what that tells me? That tells me Peter was restored, and it tells me that Peter was going to pay an ultimate price. It always costs something to follow Jesus. It costs us everything to follow Jesus. Here's the thing, and this is what we hope for. This is what we hang our hat on in our life, right here. What Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. Oh, there's a price. But I'll tell you this, the reward far outshines the price. It's worth infinitely more than the cost of being a Christian. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.